Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, we are, as I pretty much begin every talk, reminding us that we are a uh, social species. We're born with an innate psychobiological drive to connect because that's, in our species, what allows us to survive. Um, other species survives because physiological capabilities, running, flying, swimming, fighting, burrowing, but for us, what gave our species its durability uh, is simply our ability to bond into small collectives where we, one, take care of each other for security, and two, we help each other maintain psychological well-being. Human beings do not, on their own, achieve psychological regulation, emotion regulation, without the support of others. We need both what's called co-regulation, the ability to connect with others, to express what's going on, and to have that person through their presence, through their mirroring facial expressions and their body language and their tone of voice, we limbically begin to essentially match each other's state of being. So if I'm upset and I come to you and I said something really fucked up happened to me, and you listen, and in being with you, I start to match, mirror your emotional state. That's how I process loneliness, fear, anxiety, uh, grief, and so forth. We also need to develop auto-regulation tools, which are the way we regulate strong emotions when there's nobody around. But those skills come after we develop the ability to co-regulate, and nobody can process emotions without having that ability to bond and connect with others. The key is it starts very early, and it's, in fact, the most dominant proposition in the infant from ages zero to three, the primary concern of the child is learning how to bond with another human being or human beings, parents, caregivers. Uh, this event happens naturally. The brain is what's called experience expectant. It expects to learn how to bond in early life. All of this is essentially a process developed from what's known as bottom-up. Um, the way we connect and bond with others involves some of the most basic core behavioral structures of the brain. The midbrain, the limbic system, the right hemisphere's orbital frontal, the anterior cingulate cortex. So these are not the regions of the brain involved in higher um, cognitive uh, logical processing. These are very core fundamental circuits that go from the most basic up to the most emotionally important circuits in the brain. So in to make it as concise as I can, if a child starts to develop the feeling that a caregiver will be there reliably whenever there's something that's happened that's emotionally stressful, the child develops what's called a secure base. And with a secure base, you get the feeling that you can confidently explore the world around you because you know people have your back and you expect to be taken care of if something fucked up happens to you. So a child that knows his father or mother will be looking after him in a playground will go out and interact with the other kids because he knows even if some kid becomes aggressive with me or throws sand in my face or whatever, my, my parent will come and take care of me. They'll help me process the, uh, my 
my distress. They'll help me work through it. The parent will come and sit with the child and go, oh, you're really upset. That kid kicked you and, you know, it's okay. And so the parent helps the child integrate all of its emotions and understand what emotions are and helps the child learn how to process the emotions with another human being. But suppose the caregiver is stressed out. They've got a lot on their plate. They're busy. They've got other children to take care of. They have financial struggles. They're, um, they're, they're worried about relationship issues. So sometimes the parent is available and other times they're not. Very human state. But that child then grows up with a sense that love and care is unreliable. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. And that child will grow up to cling, stay very close to the parent and won't explore the world, won't expect that people will always have her back. She'll hover around the caregiver. Now we're getting further and further away from secure. The next stop is the avoidant child whose parent uh, basically isn't capable of helping the child process very, virtually any emotion. The, the parent is there to provide security, so the parent will intervene if a child's being attacked, but that parent is emotionally unavailable, depressed, anxious, angry, uh, is incapable of matching seeing the child's distress and helping the child understand why it feels the way it feels. That parent is incapable of helping the child label its emotions. And so that child will grow up not interested in interacting intimately with others. It will grow up, uh, it won't hover around the mother or father in the playground. It won't go off to explore other kids. It will go off on its own to find toys and won't mourn the fact that it has no longer any meaningful connection with the parent. It only uses the parent as a sense of security, but that's pretty much it. And then finally, there's the last child um, whose parent is scary or abusive. And that child is put in an impossible situation because the very person that the child wants to go to for emotion regulation and support and a secure base is the one that's creating that, chi that child's greatest sense of insecurity and threat. So the very place it wants to run for security is its most unsafe place in the world. That child will freeze, uh, that child will hide, that child will make a step towards the caregiver but then run away some children who have what's known as disorganized attachment will literally, when the abuse of scary parent returns, will walk towards their parent, but facing away. They'll back into their parents. If you've actually seen the, uh, if you look up the strange test online, you can see the different attachment styles of infants starting at around one and a half. And it's remarkably different how children behave and their expectations of the world. And they've found through longitudinal studies that these patterns last with about 80% stickiness. In other words, if you're anxious at one and a half, you will be anxious at 35 and 50. The problem with these patterns, because they're built, they're instilled bottom up very early on in life, these deeply embedded emotional beliefs become very, very difficult to change. Cognitive tools like facts, information, stories, things that are ideas are very easy to change. They're in a part of the brain that's very neuroplastic throughout life. But the early skills we learn, which is how to bond with others, what to expect from others, whether we assume love is from somebody who's available or love is somebody who's unavailable and so forth. These are stored in areas of the brain that after about five years become increasingly both, one, unconscious, and two, 
very, very, very difficult to change. They're resistant to change. So if you haven't guessed by now, all the research indicates that the further children get from secure in childhood, the far greater the likelihood that they will become essentially addicted to substances in their adult life. The secure child, when followed longitudinally, has less than, as I recall, a 2% chance of active addiction. The disorganized child that's been abused is over 90%. So you can get an idea that just from the early childhood experience, how deeply these patterns matter. Uh, the anxious child, I don't remember the statistic for it, but the avoidant child that looks for uh, self-regulation with toys and doesn't want to depend on other people has a very, very high incidence of addiction as well. Children with attachment disorders are set up to look for external forms of emotion regulation. We don't trust other people to help us process negative emotions, sadness, loneliness, impulses that are uh, uh, challenged by society. If you grow up in a family where you're secure, you'll be able not only to feel those emotions, you'll be able to report them to another human being, process them that way. But also, more just as importantly, the early ways our parents related or caregivers related to us, we internalize and start relating to our own experience in the same way. So if we grew up with a caregiver who would, whatever we were feeling, whether it was frustrated, angry, sad, lonely, uh, uh, you name it, bored, the parent would be there and say, okay, right now you're feeling bored, lonely, sad, then that child will be able to greet its own emotions when it's alone with that kind of acceptance and kindness and compassion. But a child who grew up with a parent who's sometimes there and sometimes not and is anxious about that relationship will be anxious in relationship to its own emotions that are negative. The child will feel sometimes uh, fear or anger and it will acknowledge it, but it will re relate to these emotional states with a great deal of anxiety and a need to uh, cling as a, to something as a way to remove it. The child who grows up in an avoidant relationship will then develop a relationship with its own emotions of repression, pushing away, compartmentalizing, I don't want to feel this, go away to its own emotional activations. A uh, ACE study of 18,000 individuals found that upwards of 75% of drug and alcohol dependence is attributable to the earliest childhood experiences of the first couple of years of life. So it's not surprising that essentially what we're doing with addiction to any substance or any behavior, it could be shopping, internet, sex, uh, you name it, any addictive binge eating, uh, is we're simply trying to find a replacement for other people. Addiction, and here's the definition for you, is an attempt to replace other people for regulating our emotions with a behavior or a substance. It's an attempt to auto-regulate rather than co-regulate to process our emotions with the help of others. Any behavior, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, a substance or something that sounds really good, yoga, exercise, um, work, any behavior that we rely on to regulate and to help us process negative emotional experiences such as abandonment or breakups or whatever, 
any behavior, anything that we use that replaces other people is an addiction. Addictions by their very nature, because they replace other people, make our lives smaller. Every form of addiction essentially isolates because it trains the addict instead of being vulnerable and expressing, disclosing whatever pain they're experiencing in life. It trains the individual to instead seek a way to repress or remove the emotions rather than to disclose and naturally process them. The difference between a self-soothing behavior like a healthy yoga practice or a healthy spiritual practice and an addiction is that if you're using exercise or yoga or even meditation as an addiction, you're running to it as a way to not, to essentially remove some negative emotion. Boredom, loneliness, a feeling of lack of purpose, a lack of uh, connection, whatever in your life. If it's a self-soothing, a skillful form of of processing, then you're not trying to remove the emotion, you're simply trying to create a, a behavior that allows you to feel your feelings in a way that those feelings will not be overwhelming. So addictions replace, self-soothing behaviors allow you to feel whatever it is and process it, but it's just not as overwhelming. So for example, somebody who uh, is into gardening, can use gardening as a self-soothing process because they still will feel sad or lonely. It's just that while they're gardening, the sadness or the loneliness is not as overwhelming. So they can begin to sit with and emotionally develop a safe container and begin to feel and feeling the emotion is key to processing it. And then they'll be able to disclose it to another human being. Addicts describe the first drink or the first time they take a drug or the first time they do a behavior that becomes an addiction as a religious experience. They feel powerful or they feel at peace for the first time in their lives. Um, The search for emotional control since intimacy for people with attachment disorders makes us feel vulnerable. And even if we don't wind up with the sort of most uh, uh, well-known forms of addiction, it sets us up for self-harm, eating disorders, process behaviors such as gaming, gambling, internet addiction, TV addiction, and a lot of relationships that are marked by manipulation and codependence, but not co-regulation. Codependence is a relationship where each person is essentially uh, allowing the other person's addiction to flourish and creating a safe environment for that other person's addiction to, uh, main, to stay in place. Uh, it also is in a, it's a relate, codependent relationships are relationships without authentic emotional disclosure. So the Buddha, when he defined uh, addiction for us, the word in Pali is upadana, and it upadana means compulsively clinging to something as a way to get a false sense of security and a false sense of peace of mind. And that's pretty much as close to a definition of addiction as I can think. There are four types of dead objects that we attach to for security. Dead objects is a psychological term used by Naomi Klein to mean something that we attach to as a way to replace human beings, an object that can't help us process our feelings. It just represses our feelings. 
So there are four types, the Buddha said. The first is short-term pleasures. Anything we can consume and triggers dopamine that makes us feel really good. This can be anything from food to uh, shopping to consuming uh, drugs or alcohol. Anything you can consume that you uh, own or possess that creates a quick hit that represses whatever you're feeling. If you're feeling lonely, you might go on Facebook and or Instagram and post an image of yourself in the sense that if I get a lot of likes, that means people love me. It doesn't mean that. It simply means there's a lot of people pushing a button that says like. It doesn't actually help you in any meaningful way address the loneliness or feelings of lack of connection in our lives. It's simply a way to repress the feelings of loneliness and disconnection that are endemic to our society. So uh, the second is habitual routines. That's things like running, me uh, yoga, meditation, any behavior that we rely on as a spiritual bypass or any kind of bypass that um, allows us to uh, try to deny or compartmentalize negative emotional ex experiences. Uh, certainly one of the most uh, sad experiences in my life, I grew up in a Buddhist family. I was taken to Buddhist centers when I was 12 years old. And for a long time, uh, just like the yoga centers I would go to, they're very, very often to be very kind, authentic people. But sometimes there'd be these people that would paste on these expressions that were trying to come over like, you know, all I've ever known is tranquility. <laughs> I've never had a... And that is the most repressive, suppressive environment to be in. Because if you're in an environment where people are pretending that they're always at peace, and always happy, then you will greet your own emotional distress with a sense of there's something wrong with me, and it'll create a core sense of shame. The third thing we cling to is views and opinions. That's something we learn around five or six. It's a defense mechanism. Essentially, if you feel angry, it's so much easier to turn anger into a resentment story, to tell how we've been mistreated, to how this person's a shit, or that other person's an asshole, and just to repeat the story so we don't actually have to feel the anger, which is, you know, tight muscles and clenching and, you know, you know, just that horrible feeling of just, just being mistreated and that desire to do something about it that very often is stifled. If we feel vulnerable and unsafe, instead of feeling that way, we'll very often turn it into worry. We'll start worrying about things that could go wrong. Worry is a way to repress fear. Uh, essentially, self-pity is a way to repress grief and sadness and so forth. So views and opinions about other people are very often a uh, way to repress negative emotional experiences. And finally, the Buddha said the last thing we cling to when all those fail is we cling to stories about ourselves. We turn all of the negative experiences into a core shame story about there's something wrong with me that needs to be fixed. And there's this underlying belief that if I simply become a better person, learn more, achieve more, develop more skills. If only I was different, then I wouldn't have to feel this way. And that's probably one of the most brutal of all the forms of addiction. So you can see the Buddha's perception of addiction is far more global than our contemporary one. Pretty much everybody I know from that definition is an addict in some form of an, or another. We, 
use some behavior as a way to get a false sense of security, to not rely on other people, to not get vulnerable, to when we're feeling something that really sucks, rather than sit with it, hold it, allow it to arise, because that's what emotions want. They want to be felt, they want to be acknowledged, and they want to be disclosed. That's all they want. That's all our emotions want. They want to be felt so that we understand the message that's being sent to us from the right hemisphere and the survival circuits of the limbic structures of the brain. And they want to be disclosed because we are a social species. But anything that short circuits that, that represses the feeling of the emotion and the disclosure of it is eventually going to turn into an addiction. So years of attachment to a dead object crushes what's left of our healthy sense of self. In the end, addiction is only meaningfully addressed by essentially two things. One is providing us with healthy, real attachments, i.e. other people that will help us sit and acknowledge and feel the negative experiences that we were taught and trained to repress. And two, we're given healthy tools to auto-regulate when other people aren't available. When the Buddha was asked by his uh, lieutenant, oh, that's a bad word, his secretary, I don't know what he was, it was the guy who was, Ananda was the guy who was following the Buddha around, essentially memorizing every fucking thing the Buddha said. And uh, that's how we have any record of the Buddha, because the Buddha didn't write anything down. He just uh, just gave a lot of talks and then died. And then they asked Ananda, well, what the fuck did he say? And then Ananda sat there, you know, for, for years just repeating everything that the Buddha said for like 50 years of teaching. So he's one of the unheralded great figures in Buddhism. Obviously, there's a myth quality to this, but uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> Ananda asked the Buddha, is it true that connecting with wise people is half of the path, is half of the way to healing? And the Buddha said, that's a complete mistake. It's all of it. It's all of it. There's nothing else to the path if you don't have that in your life. If you don't have what he calls mita, and mita he defines as essentially attachment figures, the same kind of figures we wanted in childhood, but very often didn't get reliably. An attachment figure, when the Buddha describes it, he's almost verbatim describing what attachment psychologists describe as the ideal therapist or the ideal parent. The Buddha says in the Mita Sutta, where he defines what we need to have a spiritual path, it's someone who will be there, who will listen, who won't judge, who'll be compassionate, who won't abandon us when we're down. In other words, the reliable, secure parent that we needed when we were children to explore the world and feel safe. So 12-step <clears throat> pro programs help uh, people heal in uh, two ways, primarily. The first is, of course, fellowship. They encourage people to connect and to share their uh, emotional pain authentically. And that's probably in AA, NA, uh, OA, etc., the most valuable tool. So that's one of the two fundamental foundations of 12-step recovery. The other I'm sure you're aware of it, is that they insist that people develop a higher power, a sense of, uh, they don't say it, but essentially having a God in one's life. Now, why is, from the 12-step perspective, why is that so important? Well, I don't know that they realize it, even though I've been sober for 24 years, and I've been to many, 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 many countless decades of both Buddhist recovery meetings and AA meetings. Uh, I don't think anybody realizes a bit in AA, but it's essentially, they posit God is essential because God is an attachment figure. It's essentially a way to replace the internalized uh, 
caregiver that couldn't provide reliable attention with a sense of there being something there that's reliable. If you think about what an attachment figure is, it's something that is always available and uh, always cares about you and is always willing to uh, intervene when you need it. And think about the way that God is defined in theistic traditions. God is all places at all times. Worship and prayer brings you closer to God. God is always by your side. He's or she's your rock and strength and so forth. And I'm an atheist, so I can't really read this stuff with a straight face. But uh, essentially, it is, for many people, a healthy process. Because if you grew up with an abusive or a caregiver who was simply emotionally incapable of being present with you, the idea of creating a higher power and a healthier image than what you got will certainly give you a secure base that will help you begin to take risks that are positive in your life. The problem is that God can become just another spiritual bypass. People, I've met many, many people in recovery who over time uh, stopped trusting other people for emotion regulation and started just using their internal sense of what God wanted them to do as their sole form of spiritual practice. And that invariably leads to really shitty outcomes. I literally, about 23 years ago, sat in a meeting. I remember this as if it happened yesterday. Sitting with this guy who had just been released from prison. A pretty tough guy. And I asked him uh, what had happened. And he said God had instructed him to break into his business partner's office because he was sure that his business partner was stealing money from him. And I asked, well, did you check what God told you to somebody else? And he said, no. I heard God tell me, told me to do that very clearly. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't say it, because he probably would have beaten the shit out of me, but he, this guy needed a better God. Because uh, breaking into your business partner's office is a pretty shitty idea. Uh, I've heard countless stories over the years of people who were who essentially, because they start using the sense of God or higher power as a uh, end run around co-regulation and processing impulses and emotions with others, over time, it simply becomes a way to justify some of the most uh, aggressive or fear-based impulses we have. Now, Buddhism, for attachment figures, at the very fundamental promise uh, proposes three sources of um, of uh, a secure base. The first is, as the Buddha said, the foundation is what he called mita, wise spiritual people in your life that will be there, that will sit with you no matter what you're experiencing, will listen, and through the implicit process of emotion co-regulation will just help you uh, work through what's happened in your life. The second is uh, the Buddha. The Buddha represents the ability to be with one's own experience, one's own internal experience with kindness, compassion, and acceptance, not repressing, not running from our emotions and feelings, using what's called mindfulness to develop a safe container for whatever we whatever has occurred in our life so that we can auto-regulate or process something that's happened until we can find someone else. The third quality is the Dharma, which is the Buddha's profound teachings. And one of the core insights of the Dharma is that it's not personal. All the things that happen in life to us are not personal. They are generally, our, the experiences we have are uh, shared by others. Other people will know 
there's not any emotion or feeling that I've ever had that is unique or mine alone, that the vast majority of all of the suffering that happens in one person's life is uh, essentially repeated in other forms in other people's lives. And so, so much of the core suffering associated with addiction is the belief that there's something wrong with me that all these abandonments and rejections are somehow about me and therefore no one else will understand my pain and therefore instead of being vulnerable with other people I need to take something or do something to alleviate the emotional pain. If, on the other hand, you really get the Dharma, which is essentially positing that there is nothing personal about experience, that pretty much all suffering is has a universal transpersonal quality to it, then we no longer own or feel a sense of shame about our loss, our abandonments, our rejections, and so forth. Finally, another core uh, refuge in Buddhism is love. Metta. Metta is not just finding co-regulation with um, a group or a, a community or with a bunch of friends. It's also the ability to develop that core healthy attachment with another human being and to develop that sense of reliability with someone else that will be an attachment figure for us. So, that's it. I hope there was something worth listening to in there. And uh, now I'm going to lead you in a meditation that will help you develop distress tolerance so that you can begin the process of, co of auto-regulating negative experiences rather than relying on any addictive behavior or substance. So, thank you for listening to that. Please find a really comfortable position. And as I'll remind you, uh, when the time comes to please donate and to put your uh, stuff away when the time comes. But after this, we'll have time for questions. So closing the eyes, finding a relaxed position, and simply uh, putting a little effort in to keep your head from slouching in front of your chest. And the key to that is generally tilt your head slightly up and back like you're looking at a tall building and we'll use um, some strategies to settle. One of the best, most efficient ways to develop ease in life is not by trying to uh, think pleasant thoughts or to focus on something distracting, but is actually to use the body's core uh, structures that talk to the limbic, the midbrain, and if you learn how to talk to the midbrain, you can tell yourself that you're safe, that you're okay. And we're going to be manipulating, essentially, or leveraging the vagal vagus nerve, which is the key to this uh, pathway that both expresses our emotions and also can help us self-soothe. So let's take a long in-breath through the nose. The longer, the better. And then lift, if you like, your shoulders up while you're breathing in and just holding the shoulders up. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, dropping the shoulders and gently pulling them back to open up the chest. 
and that's the top of the, the uh, old vagal vagus nerve, which runs down the chest to the belly. And if it's the chest is open and relaxed, you're telling the midbrain that I'm not under attack. There's no threat present. And taking another long, full in-breath and then pulling in the belly, the abdominal muscles really and then as you breathe out through the mouth, soften the belly. That's the second major cluster of the vagal vagus nerve, the old. And again, you're telling your midbrain, I'm okay here, nothing to worry about. Now the higher vagal Nerve cluster runs through the front of the face. So on our third in-breath, we're going to squinch the muscles in the face, tighten the jaw, you know, scrunch around the eyes and the nose, pinched little face, and then as you breathe out, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, release the jaw, Breathe into and release any tightness in the forehead. And then keep that breath going that's informing the, ba the brainstem, a very long in-breath and very long out-breath, tells the reptilian brain there's nothing to get worried about as well. So we're using different parts of our physiological expression of our state of security to tell preconscious parts of the brain that we're okay. Nice, long, relaxed in-breaths. Long, even longer out-breaths, like counting to four on the in-breath, counting to six on the out, and then a count of two or three in the pause before you breathe back in. trying to cultivate that state of mind where you've arrived at a favorite location in your life, someplace you've traveled a great distance, and now you're at that cottage by a lake or spot on the beach, top of a mountain. Wherever you are, you're now at a place you really want to drink in you really want to take in all the sensations and remove all of the busyness in the body and mind that maintains such a high level of ongoing stress in life. So one of the qualities of arriving in life is that we let go of having anything else to do, nowhere to go, no one to take care of, nothing to plan. It's like you're on the first day of your vacation and the idea of thinking about anything else other than just drinking in this moment of your life isn't interesting at all. And one way we can relax is by filling the mind with all the ongoing sensations that are surrounding us so that we don't fall into stressful thought patterns that trigger anxiety. So listening to the sound of the air conditioner, the sound of 
traffic from the street below, feeling the expression of the inhalation and exhalation as a series of expansions and contractions in the body. Noticing the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Noticing the subtle contractions happening in the front of the body. Feelings continue to occur. So you might notice at times the throat or the belly will tighten and relax. Just try to fill up your mind with as many present time sensations that you're not creating yourself. Things we create are thoughts and memories. They are associated with stress in a lot of research. Of course, what will happen eventually is a lot of thoughts will arrive, seek your attention. Don't push them away, just note. Promise them you'll pay attention at the end of the meditation, afterwards. And eventually a thought will be sneaky enough that it will bypass your Vigilance. And when that happens, just relax with a smile or however you feel. Just relax. Let yourself return, drop back into all the sensations that surround you. No self-judgment or criticism. It's all completely natural that when we try to let go of external vigilance and just relax, the default circuits in the brain want us to think about the past or the future. It's a residue of the survival brain, but we're safe right now. And developing ease is associated not with default mode thought. It's actually associated with just settling in, drinking in sensations, giving yourself a very simple task. So we'll sit in silence for a while.
So at this point, I'd like you to, or invite you to, bring to mind a recent event that could be filed under discouraging or emotionally in some way hurtful, wounding. Generally this will by very fact that we're social species involve someone else, a feeling of either being abandoned or experiencing someone else's aggression or <clears throat> lack of concern. And try to visualize or remind yourself in any way that doesn't turn it into a story but gives you enough of a trigger that you'll start to feel some form of a emotional discomfort in the stomach, in the throat, in the face, in the chest. The goal is to process the natural unconscious psychobiological expressions, messages your brain is trying to convey to you after a painful event rather than rep repress or run from our experience. to develop distress tolerance. So while you hold an image or remind yourself of what happened, don't turn it into a story, just the basic event. You might want to visualize the person who created the, or was involved, I should say. If it's difficult to feel anything in your body, you could also ask yourself a very compassionate question. How does it feel to be not taken care of? How does it feel to be mistreated or how does it feel to be left out? Whatever. Just ask a question that is geared to create an emotional response. Hopefully you'll begin to feel some tightness in the stomach or chest or throat or face the same areas we relaxed at the beginning of the meditation. This is where the bulk of feelings are conveyed. And while you sit with this necessary and vital experience, try to breathe in a way that conveys a sense of safety, even though you're processing something that was painful. Long in-breaths, long out-breaths. And greet whatever you feel with compassion and acceptance. There's nothing to be alarmed about. Affects just want to be felt, acknowledged. They're just very simple survival messages. They just 
want to take care of us and running from our feelings only leads to greater isolation, greater substance dependence, The key to self-integration, emotional repair and healing and recovery is the ability to be with the most difficult and unpleasant feelings, to create a safe home for them. welcoming, and you could even repeat in your mind a very compassionate phrase, I love you, keep going, a phrase of tenderness directed to yourself, This is one of the two key ways we process and heal from the most difficult experiences in life. We greet the feelings in the body, we allow them to express themselves, and then eventually we disclose them as well to sympathetic friends. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and uh, I encourage you to, when you look around after the sound, see if you can keep awareness of your body, whatever you're feeling. Don't use sight as a way to push away from awareness. The emotional affects that you've reconnected with in your practice. So thank you for that. Just a couple of notes before we go to uh, questions. Um, if you'd like to read more about addiction and attachment, there's a, a, a couple of really great books. There's a mountain of research I've been familiar with, and I'll post it, of all the clinical research. But there's two books that are kind of very... Uh, straightforward. One's called The Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Mate. Uh, he's a psychologist. And then uh, Philip Flores wrote Addiction as Attachment Disorder. That's a more of a textbook, but it goes into all of the studies uh, that demonstrate the relationship between attachment disorders and addiction. Uh, if you'd like to read more about Buddhism as a refuge and a secure base, uh, there's a book called A Burning Desire by Kevin Griffin that's a, a terrific uh, list of uh, strategies that Buddhism provides to create a secure base in life. So um, check that out. And when I post this talk, I'll post a bunch of 
clinical research in case you're like-minded like me and want to see the hard science and research that's uh, shown the link between attachment styles and addiction. So that's about it. I'm going to turn